Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's a hard date to miss today, July 4th, 2022. It's the 246th anniversary of American independence. And of course, the headlines today reflect the peculiar, complicated nature of American independence as we speak. Uh, There's been a mass shooting in a Chicago suburbs, a gunman firing from a rooftop in Highland Park. We have images of an idyllic street cleared now. Either people have been shot or they fled. It somehow captures all the spirit of everything that's gone wrong in America. Um, The cover of the, or the digital cover at least, of the Washington Post covers this mass shooting, talks about inflation, something in Akron, which is very disturbing. Inflation is making homelessness worse. We know what a city in San Francisco is like when it More and more people are becoming homeless. Many American cities, perhaps now after 2022, will become like San Francisco. Meanwhile, in Akron, uh, the mayor has declared a curfew, a state of emergency. Um, After videos of the police shooting a black man dozens of times went viral. So, again, a perhaps appropriate subject on July 4. The foreign press is ambivalent and perhaps rather disappointed with America. The Financial Times, which has always been pro-America, has a piece about Roe versus Wade. Meanwhile, in The Guardian, a little bit more dramatic, there's a piece about a 10-year-old rape victim forced to travel from Ohio to Indiana because of the Roe versus Wade decision. Not everyone is pessimistic about America. The future. Joe Biden, the current president, suggests in a 4th of July message on CNN that our best days still lie ahead. It depends how you take it. Fox uh, Fox News is covering the same thing. Uh, We know what Fox thinks about that. Uh, And it's curious how people view America this 4th of July around the world. Here's a piece getting the opinion from Singapore, Hong Kong, and New Delhi, all I'm guessing with rather ambivalent views on uh, the current state of society in America. One man who's given it a lot of thought, who's an old friend of mine, is Ian Buruma. Uh, I described him earlier uh, off camera as a Dutch writer. He says he's just a writer. He is a writer born in Holland, uh, written many books, living in New York, but with a a distinctively global feel, uh, an expert, not just on European history, on Dutch and German history, but also on Japan and East Asia, teaches at Bard University, used to be the editor of the New York Review of Books. Um, Ian, how are you feeling on this 246th anniversary of American independence? Well, I feel fine. Um, The history of American independence is not something that impacts my life enormously. Um, But um, I don't feel particularly fine about the state of the nation or or indeed the world. But um, uh, if you ask me this as a personal question, um, I have nothing much to grumble about. Well, maybe that maybe I asked the wrong question or maybe that's a segue to another conversation of is that a, a problem, Ian, that 
people like ourselves, we talked beforehand, we're both doing very well. We're both making a decent living, having an interesting life. Is there a problem when we can live so well and yet the country that we live in seems in such crisis or is that just normal? Well, in a way, it's normal in the sense that I mean, there's always a crisis and, and this has always been a pretty crazy country. Um, but that doesn't mean that uh, uh, it, it doesn't change or that all crises are the same. I think it is in a very uh, bad state uh, at the moment. And um, you can't really duck it, even in your personal life, because it does impact all kinds of things that have an effect on, on everybody's life, um, even if you are sort of doing okay. And I think for um, foreigners, uh, you may be an American citizen, I'm not. I'm not um, either. Like us, uh, there is a, perhaps a, an added element which um, it makes us slightly different from um, Americans living around us, which is that we didn't come here for nothing. Um, we came here because we admired uh, many things about America and uh, life in America and so on. It's a, it is a great experiment. And um, in much of modern times, um, it has been a kind of beacon in the world that even though things could go very badly wrong uh, in many different countries, there was always America, which, which would always be essentially a free country and an open society and, and a democracy and so on. Now, uh, this is slightly in doubt, or at least it's under great pressure. And I think that makes a person like myself and, and, and probably you, you as well, um, rather melancholy because a, a place one has looked up to for much of one's life um, is now in, in, a, in a parlous state, in fact, in a worse state, I would argue, than many countries in Europe or indeed what East What do you Asia. make of Joe Biden's remark today that our best days are still ahead? I mean, Joe Biden has to say that, of course. Uh, the image looks as if there's a fire going on behind him. Um, does he have a case? Is there a case that American... Well, it's one of those facts. As, well, as you say, it's the sort of thing he has to say in a 4th of July uh, speech. Um, it's a rather fatuous statement that you, can't, you can neither prove nor disprove. I mean, perhaps the better times are ahead of us and perhaps worse times. Who, who the hell can possibly know? But I think... As a politician, he's very aware uh, of the um, danger in, in American politics of being too much uh, of a pessimist. Um, we all... Um, politician, you always have to to sort of give people hope and say something hopeful. And Ronald Reagan was perhaps the, the best example of, of how successful that can be and how risky it is not to uh, strike that note. You, uh, you came on the show, um, uh, Ian, a few months ago, actually, I think it was last year, with your very interesting book, The Churchill Complex, The Curse of Being Special from Winston and FDR to Trump and Brexit. 
does America need real leadership? I mean, you're ambivalent and suspicious of the idea of leadership, but clearly Biden isn't providing that. He's an old man. He seems at best to be pretty clueless. Well, people often say that. I'm not entirely sure that that's fair. Um, yes, he is old. Um, he, he was never the most articulate of politicians. Uh, he walks stiffly and, and no doubt, like all presidents, he's made mistakes. But I think he's not being given sufficient credit uh, for um, doing rather well in many ways. And uh, the way he's reacted to the war in Ukraine, um, I think on the whole has been calm and sensible and effective. He's kept um, the sort of Western or democratic alliance um, in NATO and in East Asia uh, together. Um, he's reassured many of the allies that the United States at this moment, at least, is in capable hands. Um, I wouldn't even really fault him as much on the withdrawal from Afghanistan as many, many people do. I think it was a sensible move. I think it had to happen. The worse it was going to get, so it's, he took a lot of flack. But I don't think his leadership has been so poor. Um, he's very unpopular. People don't uh, don't like him. Uh, I think probably blame him for all kinds of things like high gas prices and so on, relatively high, not, not high compared to most countries, uh, on him and inflation. Uh, and these are things he can't really help. Ian, you began this conversation saying that America was in ill health, and you've said that the president's doing a reasonably good job. So what's gone wrong? What's the problem? Well, I think the, the, the great danger uh, to any democracy is if um, the major political parties, and especially uh, one political party in a two-party, what is in fact a two-party system, uh, will no longer play by democratic rules. And then you have a serious problem. If uh, the leader of one of the main parties in a democracy refuses to accept uh, a, a, a free and fair, the result of an election, and uh, whips up his uh, voters into uh, a kind of frenzy, um, not to mention the violence and so on that was part of it, um, then you have a, a very serious problem. Because uh, democracy can only work if people believe in the institutions and, in, and, that, and, and people are, are, abide by the rules. If one party decides no longer to abide by the rules, that you get first a deep suspicion, of course, of all political uh, opponents, but then you get a deep suspicion of the system itself. And without public support, um, the institutions uh, which was often vaunted as sort of uniquely resilient in America and they can stand anything and so on, they won't be able to stand that kind of um, violence and distrust. Ian, you wrote an interesting piece uh, in, in June uh, the 30th last week, Catholics versus the Constitution. Uh, on, And again, you're not the first or last person to write about the way in which the secular left and the religious right or engaged in a culture war. Is the problem, though, just on the right, just within the Republican Party, or is there something rotten about the state of culture and politics in America? Today? I don't know if rotten is quite the right word, 
Um, we know that uh, religion has always been very important in, in American history. Um, we also know that the founding fathers and, and Thomas Jefferson in particular were very careful to separate church from state and make sure that uh, the authority of the church does not intrude in public and political affairs and, and vice versa. Um, and this also now, I think, um, is very much in doubt. Um, one reason I wrote that piece uh, was that there was an, a, a, a side to um, what's been happening in the Supreme Court, in particular um, in the, the Roe versus Wade, overturning Roe versus Wade case, is the extraordinary influence of the most reactionary wing of the Catholic Church. This is a country that's always had a Protestant establishment. Until recently, um, the Protestant establishment was, and majority probably, was suspicious of Catholics because they felt that Catholics um, might be more loyal to the Vatican and to their faith than to the Constitution of the United States. Now we have a Supreme Court with nine judges, seven of whom are Catholics, five of whom are extremely uh, reactionary Catholics. And, um, and they have been a driving force, the reactionary Catholics, that is, behind the effort to overturn uh, the constitutional right to abortion in, in the US. Now, that's on the right. Um, on the left, I think we also see a new wave of um, Puritanism, of quasi-religious fanaticism in a secular guise. And what I mean by... Uh, quasi-religious politics is that when the sacred intrudes on on secular politics, uh, there's no room for ne negotiations. You see this in in Jerusalem, in the Holy City, for example. You can negotiate negotiate water rights, but you can't negotiate holy holy places. What is sacred uh, is not negotiable, and uh, that goes for. Um, evangelicals and uh, radical Catholics on the right in America, but I think you see this similar phenomenon on the left, where uh, many ideological issues, uh, mostly to do with race uh, and gender and sexuality, um, have become sacred issues that are not negotiable. You can't have different views on it. There's only one possible view, and anybody who dissents is uh, immoral uh, in the way or or heretic in the way that so this is a it's it's a secular version of a religious way of thinking about politics in my view we began this conversation and you said you were doing pretty well you weren't doing so well a couple of years ago you were the editor of the new york review of books you got pushed out by i think some of the people you're describing now has that had a long-term impact on you? Is it something you've simply forgotten and moved on? No, of course I haven't forgotten it. And of course one has to move on. Uh, the worst trap you can fall into after a misfortune like that is to, to let yourself uh, be embittered by it because you're the only victim of that, nobody else. So uh, I just carry on and work and so on. Um, the one thing... Um, if there is a lesson to be, to, to be learned, uh, I don't know if, yeah, I suppose I did learn that lesson a bit, or it's, it's certainly um, 
became more obvious to me was um, uh, the cowardice of many people in fraught times. And you saw this in the early 50s when uh, there was a hunt for the Reds, how quickly people distanced themselves from anybody who might be um, infectious, as it were. And that happened to me a little bit. Not Do you think there well. is a, in America today a, a, a kind of and I, and I want to get back to the Supreme Court and the right, um, but there is a, a kind of McCarthyism on the left? Well, in the sense that uh, it's a bit different from McCarthyism in, in that it's, this is not the government or the state or, or, or a political party that's doing the purging. It's coming from um, the liberal intellectual uh, world of publishers and magazines and journalism itself, which is why it's so disturbing, because they were always the ones who stood up for um, free thinking, freedom of speech and so on, to force sim such forces on the intolerant forces on the right. And so the intolerance of the left is, is a disturbing phenomenon. I think it affects the Democratic Party. Um, uh, the Democrats badly need the support of um, the less advantaged, the economically less advantaged, and not just. Those kind of ideological struggles, I think, harms the um, Democrats. But um, uh, to just to speak for myself, and, and I'll leave it at that, no, it hasn't done huge damage to me. I, I write my books, um, I write cult columns, and um, I don't write for certain magazines anymore that I used to, but that's, you know, that's life, that happens. Let's go back to your point about the Supreme Court. You noted that seven of the members of the Supreme Court are Catholic, perhaps radical Catholic, whatever that means. I've read a lot of comments suggesting that this decision of the Supreme Court, particularly when it comes to Roe versus Wade, but also other decisions over the last couple of weeks about the environment and gun laws, they all speak of the death of democracy. But these seven Catholics on the Supreme Court, they were all appointed. This isn't some sort of papal plot, is it? I mean, what, why, why is what these people are doing, and I'm not saying you're saying this, but why are some people saying that it represents the death of democracy? Well, I think that may be a little bit hysterical. I don't think it's the death of democracy. Um, two things bother me about the way people are writing about this issue. One is the fact that, that in America, perhaps for obvious reasons, people don't point out very quickly the, the religious backgrounds uh, of these kind of things. They talk about religion very loosely. Um, but very few people have actually specified the Catholic element in it, which is important. Uh, the other thing is that the use of the word conservative. Um, I don't think um, Clarence Thomas or, uh, uh, or Judge uh, Alito, perhaps, um, or Kavanaugh, I don't think they're conservative any more than, than Steve Bannon or Donald Trump is conservative. Uh, they're radical in that they want radical change. And they're not in the business of conserving the status quo. If they wanted to conserve the status quo, they would not have gone against uh, the precedent of Roe uh, Ro versus Wade 
in the Supreme Court. So in that sense, there, I think the word is radical and not, not conservative. Is it the end of democracy? No, it's not the end of democracy. Um, the problem, I think, for democracy is that too many political uh, hot potatoes are um, left to the courts to sort out and not Congress. And the left or the, the Democrats are probably as guilty of this as the, or for allowing this to happen um, as the Republicans, because I think that the Democrats are too complacent to allow the Supreme Court to take care of abortion rights, for example, um, without enough political backing um, in Congress to uh, make that law. And so simply to, to sort of um, leave it up to the judges to resolve these issues, which are political issues and should be resolved by Congress. And in that sense, the conservatives are right uh, when they say that it's Congress that should uh, decide on these issues and not um, uh, the Supreme Court. So I think there, there is a real problem for democracy, that Congress is so, uh, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, Sclerotic. Well, it's sort of paralyzed because uh, it's so po polarized that nothing gets passed and nothing gets done. And when, you, when you're in a situation like that, then it's up to the judges to decide on uh, these very difficult issues about which there are violently different um, opinions. And it shouldn't be left up to the judges. It should be, the politicians should be sorting this out, but they're incapable of doing it at the moment. And then, of course, you do, again, get this uh, creeping distrust of um, the democratic system itself. So in that sense, um, it's a challenge to democracy. I don't think that the decision itself means the end of democracy. Ian, I did a show recently with Jennifer Senor, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist on The Atlantic. She had an excellent piece recently on Steve Batten and as the American Rasputin. And talking to her and various other conversations I've had with people who look at characters like Bannon, it occurs to me that these people really have given up on democracy, that they've made the call that it doesn't probably work very well, that most people neither understand it nor care about it very much. And when you have people with deep pockets like Peter Thiel, who seem to be backing some of these people, um, how, how worrying is that? Or am I exaggerating uh, the, the fear of people like Bannon, who are smart and quick and well-financed and incredibly popular? Yeah, I don't know how popular he is. Again, of course, Bannon is also a, a, an part, part of the extreme wing of, of the right, Catholic Another Church. Catholic with connections with the Vatican. Yes, although not, not connections probably with the current Pope, who, whom Bannon probably loathes. And, and I'm sure the Pope has very little time for, for the likes of Bannon. Uh, they belong to different branches of, of the church. Um, about Bannon, I'll say this. Um, I think Trump... Uh, just doesn't care about democracy. He only cares about himself and his own um, power and image and so on. And if um, that can be done democratically, that's fine with him. And if, it, if he has to use undemocratic means, that's fine with him too. I think Bannon, as you say, uh, really doesn't have any much time for democracy. I think he sees it as wishy-washy liberal uh, nonsense. Uh, 
and uh, he wants to see a completely different political order um, that really uh, uh, has very little precedent in American history, um, but um, is historically much more tied to similar movements, mostly in Southern Europe, uh, France and Italy and so on, um, which again is the sort of the right wing, anti-liberal, anti-Republican branch of the Catholic Church in France that was exemplified before the war by the Action Francaise. Uh, they were monarchists, they were anti-Republican, anti, uh, 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 they wanted to restore the authority of the church and so on. And in Italy, of course, it had fed into Italian fascism. And this is not something that's ever been particularly common in the United States, but it's becoming so now. Um, and uh, is it dangerous? Yes, of course it's dangerous. Ian, let's talk about some fixes. We had a typical sort of, I guess, writer on the left recently, Baynard Woods, on how in America a white racist totalitarian system permeates American history. He wrote a book called Inheritance, an Autobiography of Whiteness. He, he talked about the need for reparations. You're an expert on the post-war age. You wrote Year Zero, A History of 1945, and The Wages of Guilt, Memories of War in Japan and Germany. Do you have any lessons as a historian of, of the Second World War for America still grappling both with the guilt and how to get beyond the guilt of slavery and racism? Or is, are these just simply inappropriate comparisons? Well, no, I mean, no comparison is inappropriate because um, you're not comparing exact likes necessarily, but you can still compare. Um, where I would differ is that I don't think that the, the, the main problem in America today is race. I, I know that many people uh, in progressive circles do think that. I don't think so. And I think it's un unhelpful to think of it in those terms. Um, if you, I think you have to think, think in terms of class and economic interests as well. And that, of course, involves race. It overlaps to some extent, perhaps to a large extent, uh, with race. But if you want to um, gain back the support and the confidence of those who are underprivileged, whether they're black or white or brown, um, you have to also look at, at economic interests. And I think simply um, uh, handing money over to Afri the, the African-American minority is not going to solve the, uh, the problem. If you want to solve the problem of, of um, underprivileged, poor uh, black people, you have to improve public education. You have to start at kindergarten. You have to not defund the police. You have to have a good and efficient police. And I think uh, in many ways, uh, the, the concentration on um, ideological uh, views on white supremacy and uh, slavery and so on, uh, hinder uh, the interests of um, underprivileged um, black and brown people more than they help it. So what, as a historian, have you learned from the way in which Germany and Japan, different ways, very different countries, very different Second World Wars, got over that, that you can help America 
begin to reunite? What can you bring as a historian? You suggested at the beginning of this conversation that you're an outsider. You came to America because you believed in it. Now you're disappointed. But you have the wisdom to help America reinvent itself so that we collectively can all believe in it. What, what, can, what, what advice would you give as a historian, Ian? Yeah, but I don't think there. I think the comparisons break down a little bit because I, I don't. I really don't think it's the same, the issue is is similar enough to be able to draw great lessons for what happened in Japan and Germany. Japan and Germany, things went very badly wrong in the 1930s, um, as they did in various ways in other countries. I mean, there was a wave of fascism and militarism and so on many places. Um, in Japan and Germany, it became particularly dramatic. In Germany, there was a uh, basically a coup in 1933 um, by uh, the Nazi party in Japan. The government was gradually taken over more and more by um, militant nationalists who started a war. And after the war, what needed to be done was um, not just to learn the lessons of history, but was to um, restore and strengthen uh, institutions domestically uh, that could build a strong enough democratic system that something like something similar, a similar catastrophe couldn't happen again. That, 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 that's it in a nutshell. Whereas the struggles in America with, uh, with race, um, uh, the problems of the legacies of slavery and so on are not really comparable to that. Um, and it's a serious social problem, um, no doubt. But I don't think that race is the uh, reason for um, the... But, but, uh, I take your point, but you, you suggested earlier that the problem with America is class, inequality, divisions, which I, mm -hmm. I don't think anyone would disagree with. Um, and that requires, at least in a metaphorical sense, a Marshall Plan. Germany and Japan would never have been rebuilt without a Marshall Plan. Is that what America needs? Some sort of reinvented Marshall Plan to rebuild this country? Well, I'm not sure if the Marshall Plan is the best person. Well, give me an example. I mean, you, I think, you keep on ducking no, this. So give well, me some, I think, some, I think some... What, what's necessary and, and what was sort of promised um, at the beginning of the Biden administration um, and couldn't be fulfilled, Not again, not really because of any fault on Biden's uh, side, uh, there was, they couldn't do it, but they were promising a kind of second New Deal and to um, invest enormously in infrastructure and do what Roosevelt did to repair uh, the capitalist system um, after the, uh, the crisis of 1929. Something like that is needed. I mean, there is m much that needs to be revamped in America and, and, and enormous amounts of... problem, Ian, that that sounds great and it makes some sense, but it's rather like Joe Biden standing there and with the mop fire behind him saying our best days. No, because our I best. Mean, let's just go back to your so. point about Biden. Let's just say his build back better had gone through. Uh, to me, at least. I don't see a profoundly different America today in 2022. Gone a long way to, not Australia, the United States. That would have gone a long way to repairing the damage, I think. It would have been a very good how? start. What would Build Back Better, how would that have profoundly changed America? 
Well, build back back better meant many things. It meant um, putting far more money in infrastructure, improving education, uh, having a greener economy, which would have created new jobs, new uh, employment opportunities, and so on. These this has to be done uh, incrementally. It can't be done overnight, but it's 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 the direction the country needs to go. So I think Biden identified the problem um, quite clearly when he uh, when he was elected, and also um, had a, a pretty good idea on how it could be implemented. But he couldn't because the Democrat uh, majority is much too slim. Um, there was no way he could get these things through the House and the Senate and so on. So he couldn't do what was desirable and necessary. Simply saying times are going to get better is a slogan. But the uh, building back better had, had real, was a real program. Yes, I, 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 that may be true. But let's face reality, for better or worse, Ian, now in 2020, firstly, had it happened, it would have made inf the inflationary crisis even worse. And one wonders about how much of that investment would have actually trickled down to poor people, certainly by 2022. But leaving aside that question, which is unanswerable, in 2022, we have a country racked by inflation. We have a country even more divided on political grounds, seething with violence, mistrust, lack of conversation. What's the best case scenario? Scenario, so it's not scenario, scenario, Ian. For you, you're you, a historian, you're, you're hard-headed, you've looked at the past of many of these countries. What can we expect over the next five to ten years in America, which is viable and doable, given the cultural and political and, 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 and economic divisions in the country, which aren't just going to disappear? No, but a lot of those problems are not unique to America. I mean, the inflation um, for example, and uh, the cost of living, um, rising crime. These are things that are going on uh, in many different not places. Mass gun murder. I mean, America no. Well, if if you ask me, do do, do I think that they that it would be great if um, the Congress and the Senate uh, would come to an agreement to really uh, curb uh, the selling of guns in the United States? Of course, I would be absolutely in favor of it, but I don't think that's going to happen. Well, that goes without. We're all in agreement, uh, Ian. Yes. But that goes without saying, but it's not going to happen either. No, it's not going to happen. But I think that there, that a shift in um, um, where you concentrate your energies um, on the left, in the on, on the democratic side, um, could take place in a way that would probably be positive, and that is that you have to look at the reasons why so many. Um, under underprivileged people, white people on the whole, but not only Latinos too, uh, and some blacks uh, voted for Trump, and uh, there are real economic reasons for it. And the, and again, it's not a uniquely American problem. The left in Western Europe have also lost uh, touch with the old constituency of the left, that is to say, what used to be called uh, the working class. And the left in America and in Europe have to find some way to get that back. And simply to go back to the 1950s is obviously not an option. The old working class is no longer what it was. Uh, the unions are no longer uh, as important and so on. But I think that, that, that progressive have to really rethink 
their priorities. And that means less uh, culture war uh, and more class war, as it were. Well, yeah, let's end on a happy note on this 246th anniversary of the American Day of Independence. You know, at the beginning that you came here because you believed in America. You're still here. You're living in New York. Um, you have a good life. It may not be an ideal life, but no life is ever ideal. Remind me of, 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 of qualities of America that you still like, that still mean that you live here, because you could go and live in Holland whenever you wanted, if you chose. Well, when I think of the main reason, um, I, li I mean, I, I enjoy living in New York. I like New York. I feel at home here. Um, but the main reason uh, was once uh, articulated to me by a, a, a well-known Romanian writer, a friend of mine, called um, Norman Mania. And Norman Mania uh, was a Jewish Romanian who, as a child, was in a, in, in a, uh, was in a dreadful concentration camp survived it with his parents and then lived through the Ceausescu period uh, in a small provincial town in Transylvania. And he wanted to be a writer. He was uh, studied to be an engineer, but he wanted to be a writer and really make a go of it. And he asked an older friend of his whether he should move to Bucharest. And the older friend said to him, if you're going to be on the shit in the shit, you better be in the big shit. That's really my attitude to living in the United States. And is it still the promised land? You, uh, you wrote a book, uh, Ian, uh, Their Promised Land, about your grandparents. Can America still be the promised land for future generations? Well, I'm not sure I believe in promised lands anymore, but it, uh, that particular one was, of course, Britain and not America. And finally, Ian, always a pleasure and honor talking where you're surrounded with books. You're one of the best read people I know. What else are you reading these days to keep you amused, entertained and informed? And why? Well, I always have a Japanese book at hand and I'm reading a... a like a all of us, by, Ian, right? Yeah, and I'm reading a novel <laughs> by Tanizaki. Um, and I'm also, I have to write a long essay um, uh, sparked by a, a classic book, um, and the classic book I chose was Hannah Arendt's um, Eichmann in Jerusalem. So I'm um, reading a lot of books around that.